0: If you were going to map out the first few days of Jesus as a ministry manager, you would have never mapped this stuff out. Uh, everything he did in these opening days threw the disciples for a loop. And it really wasn't until they got to the Sea of Galilee and the decision was to go over to the other side that they, for a moment, felt comfortable. But the comfort of that calm and placid sea is going to be instantly taken away from them. Uh, We in the Christian life are most vulnerable when we feel most comfortable. We are most vulnerable when we feel at home in a particular setting as the disciples must have felt when they finally got to the Sea of Galilee, just just the opening days of his ministry. Think about it. He gets a big crowd together, and then he leaves that crowd and gives specific teaching to his disciples, leaving the crowd behind. When he finally comes down off that mountain and he encounters a mass of people waiting for him, a leper comes. And he touches someone that you're not supposed to touch. If I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, I'm wondering if he has leprosy. He touched a leper. The leper was cured. Rather than the leprosy being transferred to Jesus, Jesus' purity was transferred to the leper. So he leaves that scene and all of a sudden a Gentile roman officer comes to him we don't talk to gentiles we don't talk to romans we hate romans because they're in our land and he actually heals a nobody the roman soldiers servant from a distance well if things couldn't get worse they they come on into capernaum and in peter's home is his mother-in-law sick and he actually ministers to a woman by touching the woman and the fever left. Uh, and then the day that day ends with this crowd around that house, and he ministers and heals many. I didn't mention that they're up north in Galilee, north of the town Jerusalem where ministry probably should have begun, and didn't, they're going to the no-names and nobodies of of the north, up in Galilee, and Capernaum, and and Nazareth, and those places where the the Jews have mixed with the Gentiles, and it's where, it's, it's kind of a mixed breed up there, and we don't, Jerusalem is the cool place, the best place. Because the people you really want to influence are the priests, and the high priests, and the Scholars and those kind of guys. Jesus goes to the common man, touches people that should not be touched, talks to people he should not be talking to, and heals people he should not be healing. You're going to find that in Matthew, we're going to expand the study to Mark in just a minute, and we'll find out what went on the next day. It's a long time of teaching, but before we do, I want you to look with me in Matthew chapter 8, in verse 23 these men that followed him were by and large fishermen who knew this lake wasn't a large lake. It was 13 miles long. At the widest part, it was eight or nine miles wide. This wasn't a big body of water. Fishing was the industry, and there were hundreds of boats on this lake, and so I want to show you what these boats look like, this is remnants actually of, a, of one of these fishing boats from the first century. This would have been the size. The chances that that was Jesus' boat are very unlikely. There were thousands of these boats that floated and fished, the men fished out of them. To give you a better picture of what the boat probably looked like in their day, and there it is. Uh, easily held the 13 men, not too many more men, but it was easily held the 13 men that were on or in that boat, okay? Thanks for that. Take a look at verse 23. And when Jesus got into, notice it doesn't say a boat, it says the boat. Well, why does Matthew designate the boat? In order to do that, you have to go over to the Gospel of Mark. Whenever you study one of the Gospels, it's very interesting to take whatever story you're studying and look at it wherever it is in another Gospel. Because within those other Gospels, we're given more input of what went on that day. So we're going to take the time this morning to flip over to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4, I believe it's at. So Mark chapter 4, turn in your Bibles there. And we will not take time to read, obviously, the whole chapter. It's very long. But I do want us to look at verse 1 of chapter 4 of Mark. Chapter 4 of Mark. This was the next day, we believe, after the day before coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, notice chapter 4, verse 1. Again he began to teach by the sea, most likely in the morning. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat. Notice, not the boat, a boat. Could have possibly been Peter's boat, or someone in James and John's business who had many boats. But he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So you see this beautiful picture of him being crowded, so the fishermen said, well, here's a boat, and so they bring it up, he sits down, he floats off a little, maybe 10 feet, and by the way, the acoustics and the ability to to project the voice on water as it goes up on this land is amazing. It was almost like he had a microphone in his up side of his mouth. And so he taught them all day long. I don't want you to mix, miss this because his disciples were listening to him teach. The twelve that he would take in that boat with him sat there and listened to him teach. We're not going to look over all the parables, but in chapter 4 we have the parable of the sower who went out to sow. You remember the four different types of soil it fell on, some the birds got, some some didn't have the depth, and some the the thorns choked out, and some fell on good soil, and that's what brought forth fruit. Uh, The disciples asked him about that parable, he explains to them that parable, and also having your lamp under a basket, he talks to them about the seed growing like the kingdom of God from a very small seed, and then he ends it with the mustard seed parable. Now these men are listening to all this. These 12, they're taking it in. And then look at verse 35 of chapter 4 of Mark. On that day, when evening was calm, he said unto them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took him with them in, notice now it is not a boat, it is the boat. It is the same boat that he has been sitting in and teaching all this time. It becomes the boat. So let's go back to Matthew. I want you to get that firmly in your mind because I want you to understand what Jesus is doing here with the storm. Verse 23. So, when he had gotten into the boat, and we now know that the boat is the same boat he sat in and taught the crowds and the disciples. Matthew says his disciples followed him. It's fascinating because in Luke it says he got in with them. Um, Mark gives us the idea that they took Jesus into the boat with them. Interesting, three different perspectives. What really went on was really all of them. Perhaps a few got in the boat, and then the rest followed Jesus. But the point is, the three men tell it differently for different reasons. Matthew is the king of the Jew, and the king always leads, so the king got into the boat first. The disciples followed him. Notice, he got into the boat first. There's something else I want you to see before we go on. And it's back in verse 18. Does that mean my time is over? Should I expect at any moment a hook to come out? (laughs) Yeah, you never know. You never know. Notice verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders. Notice he gave orders. To go over to the other side. That was the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Don't miss that. It's extremely important. Whose idea was it to go over to the other side? Whose idea was it to get in the boat? And the promise was that when we get into the boat, where are we going to end? On the other side. Don't miss that. All right, look back at chapter 4, verse 24. And behold, there arose, there's the adjective, a great storm on the sea. Now, I mentioned last week, and I'll mention again because perhaps some of you weren't here, perhaps you didn't remember, but the Sea of Galilee, again, 13 miles long, eight or nine miles wide, was a fishing lake that could be whipped into a frenzied storm in a matter of minutes. Literally minutes. On on the west side of it was the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights have tunnels, wind tunnels. They're they're carved out, carvatures in the mountain that run down and run down and run down. Well, the wind could get in those tunnels, those open areas, and and with great speed whipped down on top of the lake. Uh, there was a group years ago who were meeting there on a tour, and they really questioned uh, the leader of the tour whether this placid lake could be whipped into something dangerous. Almost immediately, the wind picked up, and that wind came down, and those seas began, and white caps formed in seconds, and before they knew it, the mist off that Lake was blowing 20, 30, 40 feet inland, and they had to run. Storms could blow up, can blow up so fast and so furious that a ship that fishing size could be lost out of sight, up and down in the wake. So, a great storm was on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. <laughs> you know, we, we preachers have used this for years, and I have no problem using this for the storms of life. Storms come, do they not? Storms come unexpectedly. Someone said you're either in a storm, you're coming out of a storm, or you're fixing to go into a storm. Things happen in life that are unexpected that send us down paths we never expected. Sometimes we never fully recover from storms, perhaps in the death of someone close to you or illness. Now you've got to deal with the rest of your life. Storms are serious things, but they never come in the Christian's life without God knowing that they're coming. Some of you have been through dark and deep waters. You've been in this boat. You know. Look at Jesus in the boat. Don't want you to miss this. It says that the boat was being swamped. Water was coming in. When water starts coming into a boat, you don't have a lot of time, it could go down fast. And where was Jesus? He was sleeping of all times. There was a cushion. There was a back cushion on the back of the boat. He was sleeping in the boat. Now he'd had a long day of ministry. He taught for a long time. He dealt with people for a long time. It's an exhausting thing. I speak for 30 minutes and I go home and just crash out in the afternoon. Sunday afternoon naps are the best because what I'm doing right now, although it seems very easy to you, it is physically exhausting. And so for Jesus to sit in that boat and to teach like this hour after hour after hour, he is out. He doesn't feel the waves. He's out. Notice verse 25. And they went and woke him. They woke him up. That's what we would do, right? You're in trouble. you wake him up. Now, again, I've heard preachers use this. Well, Jesus is, Jesus is asleep. If Christ is asleep in your life, you, there's none of that there. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you, that's the best place to be in a boat, in a storm, is asleep. It says, and they went and woke him, and they said, save us, Lord, we are perishing. See the drama, how dramatic they are? Well, if you're a fisherman, you ought to know how to handle a boat. These were men who were experienced on the sea. This was their realm. This was their stuff. Let Jesus sleep. We can handle it. They couldn't handle it. I'm telling you, when the storms of life come, none of us can handle what's coming. None of us. I went out of my yard yesterday afternoon, and there was this little black area. It was about 10 inches in diameter. Curious, so I walked over, and it was a a whole 10-inch diameter area of little black grasshoppers that had balled themselves up. I got Lorelei out there. I said, What do you think that is? She said, You know, in science class, we're studying, th- we, we were told that grasshoppers mate in clusters. I said, Oh, you're having, I said, Well, they teach you those things now. And I thought, a little grasshopper love fest going on right here. So we yeah, we went in the house, we didn't think nothing of it, and I, I came back out later, I, I had to cut the yard. Now I didn't pick to cut the yard that day because I saw my grasshopper. Some of you think I'm cruel to animals, I'm really not. The grass just needed cutting. I thought of it, la- yes, I thought of it later, I, I guess I could have gone around the grasshoppers, but I didn't. The bad boy rode right over them. I walked out later, and sure enough, there they were off to the side. Some of them were limping. Some of them them looked like the walking dead. They were dragging the backs of their bodies around. (laughs) I knew I shouldn't have shared that illustration. (laughs) Let me bring it back to you now. Bring it back down before the bell rings again. This is what life does to us. We think we got a little cluster of joy and happiness, a little love fest going on, and the bad boy, and some idiot, comes over and just destroys what's going on. This is how fast life can change. This is how rough things can be. Jesus' response to them was a rebuke. I'm curious of that, because it seems quite normal that these men would be terrified. There are no atheists out to sea, and even the believers cry out to God when things are difficult. So what's the problem? Notice what he says to them. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? That doesn't seem logical, does it? I got a good reason to be afraid. The guy on the bad boy mower's coming. That's I, I got all the reason to be afraid. Life is terrifying to me right now. I've got this thing going on inside me. I don't know what's going on. I don't know this or that, and, 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 and this is bad, and that life is a storm to me right now. I've got every reason to be afraid. Jesus said, "You do not have reason to be afraid. I'm not letting you off that hook. How can he say that? Well, I direct you back to the promise made back in verse 18. He said he gave orders to go over to the other side. When Jesus says that we're going over to the other side, we're going over to the other side. There's a promise here that they were to claim that they did not claim. Now watch this. These were the same men who sat and hear all the beautiful teaching about the parable of the sower. They heard all about the faith that they were supposed to have. And when things got tough, all that went out the door. I don't think it went out the door. I, I think it was still there. I don't think it was here. Jesus wanted to take what was here. Amen. Good sermon, preacher. Amen. And he wanted to make it a part of their life. So how did he do that? He brought them a storm. This isn't a random storm. Jesus went to sleep knowing the storm was coming. He went to sleep knowing it was coming. He made sure he was sleeping. He said, fellows, let me show you how I handle a storm. I rest through it. But he rebukes them. He says, why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? He didn't say they had no faith because they came and got him. They believe he could do something, apparently, or at least if they're all going to die and the kingdom of God is going to end right there, at least they want him to know he's going down. I want to suggest to you that great faith for these men would have been joining Jesus Christ in sleep. If they really believed, they would have all curled up and you'd had a little, little grasshopper cluster right there, right around that... Right around that cushion where they all just went to sleep. Because when Jesus is in the boat, we're not going down. Not going down. And look what he does. The greater miracle would have been if they all went to sleep. But he's awake now, why not? He rose and rebuked. The word rebuke means to muzzle. It's the Greek word to muzzle an animal. Jesus muzzles the wind and the sea. Notice there was not just a calm. There was a great calm. An unexplainable calm. A calm that defies description. Normally, if there's a big storm, it takes some time for the water to, you know, the white caps and then the white caps leave and then there's this wave and, you know, finally, maybe an hour later, you get a little bit of placidness going on. I'm telling you, when he got up and he... Commanded and muzzled the winds and the sea. There was an immediate. Bloop. There, was an, there was an immediate. Let me do that again. Ready? It was an immediate. Whip it, whip it, whip In four years of the Navy, I saw one calm sea. I saw uh, uh, the ocean as we were leaving one of those Caribbean ports. Never saw anything before or since like it. There was not a single ripple on the ocean. It was a piece of glass. Amazing. I never saw anything like that again. And that's what I believe the Sea of Galilee was. Unbelievable. And listen to me. That is the calm that Jesus gives to us in the storms of life. It is not progressive you know i feel better today than i did before it's immediate and it's instant and it is placidness and i know many of you have probably all of you have struggled with things in your life where you got to a point where you just hit your knees and gave that thing to the lord and he took it away and there was a peacefulness inside of you this is what he does look at their conclusion in verse 27 And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Who in the world have we got in this boat? You know, the longer you know the Lord, the more you're astonished at his presence in your life. I mean, you first get saved, it's glory. Your sins are forgiven and you're on a happy trail, but you really don't know who's inside of you until years later when you pass through this stuff. And you've watched him work. <laughs> Oswald Chambers used to say, any, 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 any young man under the age of 30 ought to be locked up in a band box. <laughs> band box was, a, oh, anyway. And God can do miraculous things through young people. Absolutely. But it's through the process of the storms and things of life that you, you know, He's fa- how many of y'all have found him faithful in the storm? When God came through for you and muzzled that, those seas. Peace. Well, they should have known what kind of man they had in Psalm 65. And I'm going to turn there. And we'll finally get down in Psalm 65 to verse 7, but I want you to see the context of Psalm 65. If they'd had that committed to memory, they would have absolutely known what kind of man was in that boat. Psalm 65 begins, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion. So the immediate context of Psalm 65 is God. God. It goes on, and you shall vow, and and to you shall vows be performed. O oh, you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. On and on and on. It's God. It's God. It's God. Verse six says, "The one who is." who by his strength establishes mountains girded by might. Notice verse 7. God who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves and the turmoil of the people. It's God in that boat. By Jesus calming these seas and and muzzling the winds, he's fulfilling Psalm 65, verse 7 in reference to God himself. What a day. I'm convinced that God wants to jerk every bit of self-confidence out of us that's there. God wants to eliminate within us a sense of our own sufficiency. On the land, Jesus, you kind of live there, you're a carpenter, but out to sea, this is our deal. We live as fishermen. Years ago, I went fishing with Tim, and uh, I've I've fished all my life, but I'm not a fisherman to that level. Tim, Tim's a fisherman, so I'm smart enough in the boat to keep my mouth shut and listen to him, telling me where to throw this and that, and rightly so. But, But it doesn't apply when Jesus is in the boat, because as good as a fisherman as these men were, they weren't God. Let me give you three things, and then we'll, we'll close out. Number one, storms of life are needful. They're needful. Nobody likes them. Nobody wants them. We need storms. We need these things. They spur us on to Christian growth. They show us our need of the Savior. They show us the sufficiency of Christ. They take the truth that you hear on a Sunday morning, and when you get in the rub of it, you got to make a choice. Storms are needful. Not popular, is, is it, to say those things? Most preaching tells you how to get out of the storm. I'm telling you, God sends us into the storm to fulfill His purposes in our lives, to strengthen and deepen us, and to solidify truth within our lives. Do you know a tree takes in sap one month out of the year? What's it doing for the other 11 months? It's solidifying fiber for wood. You know that. The faster the tree grows, the weaker it is. One of the weakest trees there are are pine trees because they're so fast coming up. An oak is a slow grower. But the fiber and wood in that oak is solid and God is, is developing oaks and he uses storms, difficulties, heartaches. When you think you can't take another step, we reach out to him. Number two, claim all of his promises. Go on and claim them. Now don't claim the ones he hasn't given you. And you, you get in that scripture and see the promises. What are his promises? I will never leave you or forsake you. He will never leave us. He will never be tired of us and go, that's enough. I can't take any more of Mike. Get out of here. I'm out. I'm gone. You've exhausted me. Another promise. That his blood would cleanse us from all sin. He promised that those who are in the Father's hand, he will never lose, no matter what happens. He said, my peace, he didn't say, I'm going to give my peace to you. He said, my peace, I give unto you. Claim that. Get into the scripture and claim everything he has promised because all his yes is yes. This promise is true. Boy, those waves are real, aren't they? That boat is small. And I can see the water collecting in the boat. I can see that, man. You get your eyes on those waves, the wind, the boat. I would have loved to have been there and listened to these 12 guys go at it, you know? Do we wake them up? I don't know. No, we can handle this. Judas is over there wondering about how much money they're going to lose when the boat goes down and, you know, he's calculating the cost of everything. Peter said, well, let me get out and walk on the way. And they said, no, it's not time for that yet. You haven't done that yet. I mean, just the combatantness perhaps within them. But they all came and got him up. Should have gone to sleep with him. Number three, great faith. Great faith is when the struggle and trials and storms come, we rest with him. Now don't be too hard and down on yourself if you're not there yet. By God's grace, someday through all these storms, we will begin to learn to go to sleep with Jesus. They should have let him sleep. They should have joined him in sleep. That's how you rest. That's how you get through a storm. You get your eyes on Jesus Christ, and then you get down on that cushion and he just fall asleep in his presence. I wonder what would happen to that storm if they had done that. I think it would have raged on. And I think when they had woken up, they would have been on that other shore. Who knows? But the great faith is joining him in rest when the storm hits.